Welcome to the Foolish Adventure Show, where guru hype is banned, lifetime value of a customer is king, and the internet business has replaced the J-O-B as the path to financial success and personal freedom. Now, here's straight talk about making a living online with your host, Tim Conley. Welcome to another episode of the Foolish Adventure Show. I'm your host, Tim Conley, and I've got a special guest with me, another one of my mastermind members, Mr. Jesse Lawler. What's up, Jesse? Hey, man. How you doing? I am doing great. I'm doing great. I was trying to think of like a really cool introduction for you, and all I could do is keep thinking it back to the Philippines and having you as my next door neighbor at the resort. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I was thrilled just to be called a special guest. I'm like, uh, all right. Well, a very special guest. (laughs) Nice. I'll take every adjective I can get. Yeah. So, you know, walking by your room in the Philippines, that is always going to be ingrained into my head. You know, I, I think the most memorable thing about the uh, the space that we shared between our two rooms in the Philippines was like during like the week and a half or two weeks that we had there, there was like a rat that died sort of in the bathroom <laughs> ceiling, like separating our rooms. And like there was just this horrible stench I couldn't identify that was like pouring down into my room. And I, I felt so vindicated when like you started smelling it too, because then I knew it wasn't just me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the, the joys of island life. Island living, exactly. Yep. So let's jump into what it is you do because I think this is going to be instructional because I get this question a lot in my email inbox, which is I'm not a developer, but I've got this idea for software and I don't know how to get it built. I don't know how to program. What do I do? So this is something that you do for companies, you actually create apps for them. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of the, uh, the solution to, to that question in general is sort of what my company does. We do custom software development for both mobile applications and also sort of the, like the level of website beyond what you could do with like a WordPress site or sort of one of these you know, canned solutions that's available now. Yeah, it's just popped in my head a title for this episode. We're going to be kicking apps and taking names. That's what we're going to do. Nice, nice. All right. All right, so let's do that. Let's go into like what kind of apps that you actually develop. I've talked with you in the mastermind call about uh, iOS apps, but is that all that you actually program? We've done a handful of apps for, uh, for Android stuff as well. And a few things that are sort of, you know, HTML five web apps, which, which can kind of straddle all platforms by the nature of being HTML five and not being programmed sort of in, in one uh, platform specific language. But like I myself am an iOS coder. I've gotten pretty, pretty sharp toothed at that the last few years. And so when it's something that sort of I take under my own wing versus one of the people that works for me, it's it's almost always iOS and then some combination of like a like a SQL server backend or, um, you know, a, a lot of the apps have sort of a combination of what exactly what, what actually exists on the device that you're holding in your hand. And then also sort of a, a backend that's on a server somewhere and that server might be running you know, any number of different languages to uh, to support what it's doing on the server side. Okay, so are you doing anything that's going to take months, years to develop for someone, or are they relatively short projects? We've we've done multi-month projects, never done a multi-year project, but I mean that that's pretty long time in the technology space. I, I think the the quickest and dirtiest app that I ever did, I actually got uh, done in you know start to finish in in a long afternoon, like you know starting at like four in the afternoon and going until ten o'clock at night. Um, but I'd say most of them are sort of on the uh, 
in the range of about maybe a one month project start to finish. And we, we tend to straddle, you know, four or five things in the shop at any one time. So, uh, yeah, I mean, probably our biggest project was maybe about a, like a three month beast with a series of, of upgrades that, that went afterwards. Okay, so I'm going to play dumb because, well, I am. I don't know what I don't know. So I have this cool idea. I want to create this app. Now, what do I do from that stage? Uh, How do I start looking for somebody like you? How do I find people like you? You you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I guess probably, you know, the best way to do it when you're looking for anything technology-wise is to, you know, pull out Google and, you know, say like, you know, app developer, my city, if, if it's important that you're actually in the same city with somebody, then, uh, and, and sometimes it is, I mean, you know, there's a lot we can do over Skype now, uh, or, or, you know, any means of communication that we have, but sometimes it's still nice, especially if, if one of the two parties is not necessarily totally technically proficient to be able to sit down at the same machine. And, and also there's the fact of being able to like look somebody in the eye, read their body language, you know, get to know them as a person and know that they're not going to flake on you. Um, we have a lot of situations where somebody will come to us uh, and they've already been working with a developer. You know, maybe they went to like, you know, find a developer in India or in, in another country where, you know, there's, you know, not nearly as high of a labor rate to produce these things. But, you know, they found a developer that got them kind of maybe two thirds of the way up the hill and then the engine stalled and they weren't able to complete the app. And so they've got something which is, is kind of half working, but and, they, and they've you know, already spent some money and they're, they're kind of like, you know, pregnant with a project that's not all the way there. And, and you know, then that developer flakes or it just becomes clear that person's not going to be able to you know, get it all the way up the hill. And then they come to us with something which is, you know, they think is 90 percent of the way there. And of course, it's kind of like what we're always stuck in the situation of telling people is like, look, if somebody was building a house for you and uh, you know, they weren't a, they weren't a good enough architect or good enough contractor or whatever to be able to finish the house. Are you really going to trust that the foundation that they poured is something steady that you're going to want to build, you know, quote unquote, the rest of your house from um, it's, it's almost always easier in those situations to just kind of start from the ground up. Cause there, there really are a lot of um, developers out there that I guess know just enough to be dangerous and um but but don't necessarily you know have have what it takes to bring it over the finish line. So I, th- I think there is something to be said, I guess, to find somebody that is local that you can you know kind of verify and check out that they really know what they're doing. Or of course, you know, if, if it's it's a legit large company that you can you know, go to the app store, download a bunch of things that they've done, play with the apps that they have that are already online, then that that's another uh, you know obviously major you know point of of safety for you. Okay, I want to go back to the code. Yeah, because a lot of people have this misconception that, well, if you're programming in PHP, well, it's all PHP, but they forget the language part. Yeah, that that that, that would definitely be a misconception because most most apps that are sort of worth their their salt these days have a couple different things talking to one another. It, it's not necessarily all in one language or one you know data format. It's like you could you can have an app that exists maybe on the iPhone, which is coded in Objective C. But then it's translating its information into like a JSON string or an XML string that's being sent over the internet through HTTP protocols, you know, winding up getting received by a server that maybe is running a PHP script, maybe is running a, you know, ASP.NET script, um, and then is sending information back and forth to a database, which might be a, you know, MySQL database or a SQL server database or, or any other number of things before, you know, making some operations and puking some information back sort of upstream, uh, you know, out, out to the app again. So there's, you know, just in that list I named, there's probably like, you know, four or five different languages or protocols that are, that are all being used 
you know, kind of seamlessly as far as the user is concerned. Right. But on the code side, for somebody like you having to come in and deal with someone else's code, they have written that code. And it's called a language because it can be written a lot of times like a language. People have their own little flares, their own way of writing stuff. And coming back in and having a look at someone else's code, especially if it's poorly commented or in most cases not commented at all, and you have no idea what they were trying to do with that section. Yeah. Right. You're like, I I don't even know what this means. Right. Because they had something in mind that they were trying to achieve. And then you, as someone coming in after the fact, has to try to decipher what this person was trying to do. And people don't realize how much of a pain that really is. And that sometimes it'll just save them a ton of money for you to just throw out stuff instead of trying to go in and decipher what this person was trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's like, gosh, I'm going to butcher this, but I I think it's like the Brothers Karamazov or one of these famous Russian novels that starts off that, you know, like, all happy families are essentially the same where there's a million different ways for families to be miserable. And it's kind of the same way with code. It's like when you're reading another developer's code and the developer really knows what they're doing, it's like it's a thing of beauty. You can you can understand their their data structures and the logic of what they're building. And it's like, ah, they get it. They get it. And you know they get it because the code itself is so clear to you on a first read. And it's, just, it's a really nice feeling when you come across code that that makes you ha- have that warm and fuzzy feeling as a fellow developer um but you know most of the time that's not what you find most of the time you're kind of pulling at spaghetti strands trying to figure out what connects to what other places within it and, and especially you know chances are if you're a developer reading somebody else's code it's because something hasn't worked right it's, it's because you're trying to fix it or because you know that developer left to timbuktu and, and you're sort of the guy that that inherited the thing so um yeah normally it's a bad situation when you're having to read somebody's code other than your own, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because your own code's fine. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah. It's never my kid that's the ugly one. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So here I am. I've come to you. And what should I be bringing to someone like you? Should I be bringing a full-on 25-page RFP? Or should I just come to you with my idea on a napkin? That's a really good question. Um. And, and a lot of the answer has to do with, with what your own level of technical proficiency is. There, there are people that I guess have sort of, they think that they know enough about coding to really be able to kind of dictate how it should be done. And, um, and oftentimes those people can be difficult to work with because if, you know, if they really knew that much, they would be a developer themselves trying to prescribe exactly, um, the inner workings of, of a program is probably something that's best left to professionals. But if you have a, a very clear, like a screen flow document, something is like, you know, I want the home page to look like this or the front screen, whatever it is. And, and then, you know, my subsidiary pages to kind of, you know, be X, Y, and Z. These buttons are on these pages. These pieces of functionality are available to users in these certain ways. Um, that kind of stuff can be really, really helpful. Because, I mean, really, I think what you want to bring to a developer is, is a clear conception of what, you, what the user is supposed to be able to do and what the user's experience while they're doing that should feel like. And if you can convey those two things, then um, working with the developer to figure out how they're going to you know, technically accomplish that result is, is a lot easier. Because you don't want to leave the developer kind of coming up with you know, what is the user interface like, what what is the user able to do? I mean, really, really, I guess that's the first question is like, 
what are, what are you supposed to be able to do? What is the basic functionality that you're trying to um, achieve for the user? Okay. One of the things that I ran into recently, I wanted to get a plugin developed and I was having a hard time communicating with the developer because I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. So I knew I wanted certain things to happen, but I didn't know what was possible to occur in that environment. I wasn't sure what kind of design could be done. I wasn't sure what kind of calls could be made to the database. I wasn't sure what could be done in that particular environment. And so I just kind of explained a concept and then I just left it to the developer. And then it was like, well, this isn't exactly what I was hoping for, which obviously is dumb, right? It's like, if you don't tell people what you want, they can't give it to you. Right. But the thing was, is I knew I wanted certain things to occur, but I didn't know that they could be done. So I just said to the developer, hey, you figure out how this can be done. And what happened was it didn't come out the way I was hoping for. And it took a lot longer to get to that point because it was a bunch of iterations of going back and forth with each other. How can that kind of problem be alleviated from someone who doesn't know what to even ask you? Like if they don't know if it's even possible or if they make demands that are completely impossible, but they think it can be done and they get mad at you because you say, no, that's not even possible. How is that dealt with? Well, I think it's a, it's a little bit of a dance because I mean, you know, the situation you described is, I, I just sort of think endemic of the whole, you know, developer uh, client relationship of, of, you know, the, the developer doesn't necessarily always have a clear picture of exactly what you're going for to build. And probably neither of you, like, I mean, there's so much new, awesome stuff getting developed, you know, whether it's, you know, plugins or APIs and stuff like that, you know, technology is constantly exploding around us. And even the most totally well-versed person probably isn't going to know all the tools that are available out there. If you really, you know, looked under every nick and cranny in the internet to, to know, to know what's out there. So I think probably if I were a client with an idea for a project that was coming to a developer, you know, knowing, knowing what I know now, if it was something that I needed to go to an outside developer, I knew I wasn't going to code myself. And, you know, let's say I'd, I'd, you know, been asleep Rip Van Winkle style for five years and I didn't really know what the new technology could do. Um, what I would probably do is I would sketch out, you know, here's the, the basic pieces of functionality that I want to be having available to the users of the app. And then I would sort of priority order those like, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to come up with functionality off the top of my head, but, but basically, you know, what, what are the five things that this absolutely needs to do, or it's not worth, worth doing at all. And like, maybe what are the five things, you know, next tier down that it would be kind of great to have if we can do it with, without a reason, unreasonable amount of, you know, effort or cost. And then maybe there's, you know, five more is like, hey, if you have a chance to throw this in, if it's easy, smack it on there. And, and also it'll probably be a two-way street where it, once you lay out the basics of what you're after, the developer might be able to say, hey, you know what, actually, it'll be easy to slap this on or slap that on. Um, but, but I guess what you really want to avoid is a situation where, you know, you, you come with a, a list of demands that's sort of written in stone not all of which are equally important, but you kind of, if you present them to the developer, like it needs to be this way. I mean, a developer is normally going to take the approach that with enough time and, and programming muscle thrown at it, you can do almost anything. 
but some things are going to be a lot more prohibitively expensive as far as you know just the time and effort and, and ultimately the client's money that it's going to it's going to take to do something so you want to really have just a clear communication with the developer about the priorities for the project and and try to get straight answers from them and you know maybe talk with multiple developers before you before you choose one to make sure that nobody's kind of snow jobbing you um, to find out what the different pieces of functionality are really going to wind up costing as far as hours and effort so one of the things that uh, that follows along with that is, you know, we keep saying development and development, but what about the design? I grew up in the age of Commodore 64 and watching the PC world grow from that where everything was, we develop first, then we stick a user interface on it. And programming went that way for a long time, especially being dominated by Microsoft where, you know, Bill Gates himself was kind of anti-design for a long time, or at least antagonistic towards design. And it kind of dominated development all through the 80s and into the late 90s, where design was the thing that was done after the developers created something. But then somewhere in the late 90s, things started shifting to, hey, maybe the user, and I think I think the internet really pushed that, where there was more people interacting with software and interacting with different applications. So design started becoming very important to be able to attract people and things like that. Yeah. But then it was like, okay, so we still design it. Uh, then we got to find somebody who can develop it. And I'm kind of seeing that what a customer really wants is when they say, I want an app developed, what they mean is I want a complete application design and development. I want the whole thing to be seamless. So how is that even done? Uh, are some shops still just a development shop and you got to find your design elsewhere? You know, th- th- that's, that's a great question. Uh, most development shops are going to have either an in-house designer or at least some close relationships with, with various design partners that they can bring to the table and sort of work in conjunction with if the client isn't bringing their own design stuff. Um, some, like, for example, one of our clients is Heineken USA. Heineken USA has, you know, uh, needless to say, a, a full internal in-house design team that stipulates, you know, where every pixel needs to go, exactly what every hue needs to be to, you know, stick with the, the you know, overall Heineken corporate image. So um, you, you'll also have clients that will come to you with, with very, you know, specific design requirements that, you know, they, they really don't want you to touch or think about the designer do anything except follow their, their sort of corporate mandate for that stuff. So you kind of need as a developer to be willing to, on the one hand, provide everything if somebody walks in off the street with no real design inclinations, but also be willing to make yourself subservient to, you know, a corporation that already has their design stuff totally locked down. Um, so yeah, you, you need to be able to sort of straddle those, but at some point you definitely want, um, you know, you need a relationship with the designer because there's always going to be a little bit of, you know, design iteration uh, as the, the software gets developed to make sure that the deliverables that you need to sort of drop into your code. I need a, you know, JPEG image or a PNG image of these dimensions that, you know, matches with this overall look, you know, that the, the designer knows how to give that to you. And also, you know, I guess one of the things that you'll get sometimes is, um, somebody that comes with a very thoroughly plotted out design that they might've done early, but a design which, um, you know, while, while it could technically be accomplished, it would be so much less expensive for them to, to 
uh, you know, go a few d- degrees towards sort of the standard, you know, Apple or Android look where, where all these sort of design elements, like for example, if, if you're coding something for Apple, um, you know, Apple really wants you to make your app feel as much like all the built-in Apple developed apps that are sort of part of the iPhone by default as possible. Cause it gives sort of a more consistent user interface experience to the entire device as a whole. So Apple really tries to you know, push their developers that direction. And one of the things that they do to make that happen is, is they give you all these great, you know, drop-in components that you've seen in one app after another app after another app that, that really don't take much uh, development time for, at all for you as a developer, because they're just part of the you know Apple package. It's it's already there for you. So um, you know somebody might want to distinguish themselves within an app by doing something that you know feels different or has a drastically different user interface. And, and you know it's always going to be possible to do that. It's like if you're a good developer, you can build almost anything. But doing a um, you know let's just say like a drop down menu for example that's you know this super customized drop down menu that nobody's ever seen before versus using you know Apple's built in you know picker menu which is you know of the vanilla variety across a bazillion different apps. I mean, that that's the difference between, you know, a five minute project and a five hour project, maybe. Right. We're in this age of the big question being not, can it be built, but should it be built? Yeah, for sure. And so when somebody comes to you with an idea, what kind of feedback do you give them on whether it should be built or not? I guess the most common thing that I get where I sort of try to talk people down off the cliff a little bit, because I, you know, you see somebody that looks like they might be about to make a mistake is, you know, we get a lot of people that are like, I want to build Facebook for fill in the blank, you know, somebody that wants to build a large, like socially based many to many style website or, or app thing that I wind up saying to people is like, look, I could build you the technical infrastructure for eBay and it could be beautiful. It could be, it could do everything. It could have, you know, every piece of functionality you could possibly want. But if I build this for you and the first person that goes there goes to eBay and it's a ghost town with nothing on the shelves, nothing to buy, nothing to look at, they're just going to turn around and leave and you're never going to get traction. It's like, if you were going to build something like that, you need to have a marketing budget as well as a app development budget. So you can kind of get people to the store on day one, because if a project is something where the real value is coming from the other users of the site, if it's really a many-to-many uh, user experience where people are providing the the inherent value of it to one another, then you need to have a group there on the first day. And, and that's something that I think a lot of people kind of forget about. Um, and it's just a conversation that I find myself having a lot with prospective clients because they forget about the fact they might spend, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars to build, you know, a site or an app or whatever it is. But if they don't have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars possibly to, to market it, you know, it's, it's just going to be money thrown down a well. There's been a lot of marketers that have hit the scene and said, well, you just build an iOS app, you know, for Apple and get it into the app store and you're going to be successful. In 2008, that might have been true. In 2007, like, you know, now we've got so many hundreds of thousands of apps in the app store. It's a much different playing field than, you know, it was when it was, you know, iPhone 1, iPhone 2, and you could almost sort of throw something at the wall and expect to make a serious chunk of change at it. Right, right. And I think there's still a lot of people who think that way. They think, oh, I just need to make it. Uh, I'll come up with an idea. I'll get somebody like Jesse just to make it for me. And then the next thing you know, I'm going to be making the bank. 
what can be done though? Because we do want to actually make really cool apps for our market, but how do we actually get people to buy those things? Shucks. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's not a developer question. That's a marketer question, man. I got to throw that one back at you. The reason I ask is because there's going to be people that have this concept. They've heard it somewhere mm-hmm. that they need to be making an app and they want to get into the app business. And I get this question frequently. That's why I wanted to have you on was that there's people come to me and they say, well, I want to get into the software business. I want to get into the app business. And they never like my answer, which is, go learn how to code. Because if you're going to be in that business, you really need to understand it. You need to understand the way an app actually functions, the way it gets built, what is possible to be done. Like you really need to understand what you're getting into. That includes the marketing side of it. So the reason I asked you was because I'm thinking, well, maybe you've had people come to you with essentially that same thing, that they've got stars in their eyes and they think it's just going to be amazing. So uh, how have you dealt with any kind of clients that have come to you with that dreamy look in their eyes? Generally, I've sort of tried to talk them down from it and, and just because, you know, I want to build things that, that, you know, I want to have clients that are happy at the end of the day. I mean, I, I could you know, obviously, you know, get a paycheck out of building something, even if I kind of know that it's probably going to be stillborn, but I, I wouldn't feel good about that. And it's nothing that, you know, it's not going to help my company's professional resume having, you know, apps out there that are, that are basically sort of lifeless, like community apps with no community behind them. So when, when I sort of see somebody with that dreamy look in their eye, I, I kind of try to give them a little bit of the birds and the bees and, and say like, look, you know, if you don't have a marketing budget and a marketing strategy and, you know, probably sort of a, you know, like a, a marketing oriented partner on your team, then you really probably need to shelve this idea until you do have that. Cause it's going to be a necessary component. It's not, it's not in, if you build it, they will come type situation anymore. Like, like it really was probably for the first year or so that like the iPhone existed, but you know, those days are behind us now. And I I don't, I don't think we're going to see that again, at least until there's another major technology shift and apps on mobile phones are no longer the, uh, you know, the newest thing. It's kind of like, you know, there was this giant, giant explosion of everybody needs a website back in, you know, 1999, 2000, blah, blah, blah. And developers were charging just you know, ungodly sums of money to build anybody a website because people knew they needed a website. They didn't know what a website was or what it did, but they knew they needed one. And and we're kind of in that same, I, th- I think we're on the downslope of that same sort of just ebullient, you know, crazy phase of, of mobile apps. Um, but, you know, again, water always finds its own level. And I think it's finding its level in the app world now where there's there's so many of them that it's it is difficult for any particular app to make a splash it's you kind of do need the marketing muscle of you know some business or some celebrity or some you know movie or some something kind of pushing it uh rather than just you know throwing something out into the app store and and, you know praying to the app gods that it's going to be the next angry birds (laughs) Uh, so Instead of being at the mercy of, say, the App Store marketplace, which means you, you've you got your app coded so that it works on the iPhone, when you could use HTML5 and it be able to play on essentially any mobile device. 
Yeah. Why would somebody say, oh, I need to build, because, and I see this a lot. Here's our iOS app. Here's our Android app. You know, they've got like 12 different apps of the same software. Why go through that? Is there a benefit of having something that's coded to run natively on a device versus something that could run on any screen? Yeah, the, 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 there are some benefits. I mean, it's really a, you got to do a cost benefit analysis depending on what you're doing. But off the top of my head, the things that are nice about a native app is, you know, A, you're always going to have a little bit of the speed and performance increase because you're you're running native on the chip itself rather than kind of like being emulated. Uh, the second one, though, which is probably the biggest one, I think these days is security. Um, technically, anything that's a, a web app, an HTML5 app, is still kind of has its code exposed um, at a certain level. You can kind of see what's going on because it's uh, it's not compiled code that's running in, in sort of a protected environment the way that a native app's code is. So, you know, if you're doing, you know, financial transactions or something like that, you almost certainly want to do a, um, you know, a natively coded app versus something that would be HTML5 or at least an app that, because, you know, if you're using a technology like PhoneGap that allows HTML5 to be sort of wrapped within a, a regular uh, regular app's wrapper as far as the the operating system is concerned, you could have parts of it be native and parts of it be HTML5. And, you know, that can be a good solution if, if some areas are security important and others are kind of doesn't really matter. Um, and, and then, you know, there's still probably a few things. I mean, HTML5 can access a lot of uh, features of the phone, like, you know, GPS and things like that. I think there's still a few things like maybe the accelerometer that it's hard to get access to from a, um, HTML5 you know, web app that if you have access to the um, you know, the, the core device, is, is, it's all there for you. Okay. Yeah, because that was something that being outside of the, and looking at it, it's like, oh, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Why would I want to build multiple versions of something if I could just make a one and have people come to that as opposed to having to jump through Apple's hoops and getting approved? And actually getting sent back to you, then you send it back again because I've talked to several people. It's like, yeah, this is the third time I've sent my app over to over to Apple and I hope it gets approved this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there definitely is stuff like that. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of great reasons to use HTML5. But, but I mean, there are some things like, for example, we've, we've got you know one app that we did that makes heavy use of the camera and does, um, you know, visual effects to the camera uh, image flowing through in real time. And I don't. I don't think anything like that would be possible with HTML5 currently. I don't. I don't think there's any, you know, real time video effects using the camera's video that that you could possibly do through a web app. Okay. Um, I, I could be wrong there. I mean, again, the technology changes so fast. People are coming out with new crazy stuff all the time. But I mean, it, there are definitely reasons why a native app is still better. And you know, you see, you still see most like companies that have large budgets to spend almost inevitably opting that direction of building a separate thing for, you know, Android versus iOS. Right. Interesting. What, what kind of stuff should people be looking for? Like, cause I know you are developing some of your own stuff. When you look around, what do you say? Oh, that'd be a great thing to make. Uh, what kind of stuff should people be looking at right now? You know, when I look at stuff that, that I'm interested in sort of, you know, actually throwing my hat into the ring is like something I'm not building for other people, but building for our company to own a piece of it's, it's never going after the consumer market anymore. It's like, I don't want to try to be making 
angry birds and making something that's like, you know, everybody and their dog is going to love. I'm going to try to look for something that's, that's fairly specific and that I can try to find the people that would be, think it was actually, you know, worth something that, that there is a marketplace for it that I can identify and say, you know, this person, that person, and that person, they might be the only three people in the world, but it's worth something to them and they're willing to pay X amount of dollars for it. And, and if I can kind of, you know, identify a small group of people to whom the app might be useful and then talk with those people, verify like, Hey, look, if I go through the multiple steps of, you know, building this thing and I've got it in a couple of months, is this something that's going to be worth money to you? And, and I really can convince myself that that's true. Um, th- then at that point it becomes like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take the time and effort necessary to build it. But I, I wouldn't say, you know, I'm going to build something for the general public anymore. I, I just think that's too risky. There are too many people out there uh, building for the general public. And, and I think the kind of stars in their eyes type people, um, yeah, n- not, not to talk disparagingly about having stars in your eyes, because I mean, that, that, that's great. But um, people that are a little bit maybe naive to the, um, the realities of just how many apps there are out there, just what the competition's like, those people are generally thinking about, um, you know, the one size fits all app for the whole world of, you know, 3 billion smartphone users. Right. And I just think that it's too broad a market to aim at. Okay. Yeah. And, and I totally agree. I'm more into the B2B world. Since I've been doing Foolish Adventure, I've been running into a lot of people who are in the, what I would call like a prosumer market. Yeah. It's kind of above the consumer level, but not something that would be bought by an established business. They're somewhere in there. They're in this market where they're selling to people who are kind of in business, but not quite in business. And I, you know, I, I've been calling that prosumer, taking that from like the digital camera world. And I think that there's a bit of a trap there where we see that, oh, yeah, these people could make money from doing this. So therefore, it's B2B. And I think there's a big trap in getting into those kind of things. How could somebody clearly define that this idea would work for a business? I think that would probably be, I mean, you just want to really do the market research of, of maybe... Maybe that's an instance where you would want to work with the designer before you would want to work with a guy like me who's a developer and really you know, sketch out exactly what the app would do. Um, again, I'm thinking app rather than website, but kind of, kind of the same thing. What, whatever your piece of software that you're thinking about building, really identify what the functionality of it is, then start sketching out sort of what the screen flow would be. So what the, what the user experience would be like as you're going through and performing this functionality. And, and, you know, maybe you build a web mock-up of that. Maybe you build sort of an HTML5 click-through or something like that that you could actually get on a device, get on an iPad, get on, you know, something where you could take that, you know, it maybe doesn't have a fully functional, like, back-end. There's no live data behind it. But something that you can click on the screen and show, hey, you know, here's what the flow is going to be like as a user and take that around to these people that, that, that you're kind of hoping would be willing to spend money on this and, you know, Really, really put it in front of them. See if it's something that if you go to that final, you know, time and expense hurdle of of getting the guts for it built, if they're really going to be interested. And I think I think a lot of people probably shy away from that step because you know, sometimes it's like well, it's like when you're a dreamer. It's like, and believe me, I'm as guilty of this as the next guy. I've had plenty of plenty of stupid ideas, <laughs> but um, you know, it's like you you almost kind of shy away from the step where you maybe subconsciously realize, well, if if this person isn't as into my idea as I am, then like my dream dies. And if you can if you can you know keep pushing that 
uh, moment of truth further into the future, then you can kind of keep the dream alive that you're getting a lot of like you know, psychic energy from. Um, but ultimately, if you care about your your financial energy as much as your psychic energy, you probably want to um, kind of push that moment of decision as early in the process as you can. So if if that idea for whatever reason doesn't really take hold with with the marketplace that you think or you hope is going to be into it, you know, sooner rather than later before you've sunk too many resources. Oh yeah. That's fantastic. I, and I'm like, Oh, I really want to dive into that. And so I will, um, pushing things into the future so that you feel like you haven't failed. I've done this. Yeah, me too, man. Me too. I'm a dreamer, uh, you know, and it's like when you said uh, you've had a few bad ideas, I was thinking I haven't had any bad ideas except for the 50 journals sitting over there on the shelf of all the ideas written inside that. (laughs) You know, those aren't my ideas. Uh, I just wrote them down. Having this idea that as long as it hasn't launched yet, I haven't failed. I've felt this. And you you said, you know, about protecting that psychic energy. I think over time, it really diminishes your, your mental state because the more you push your ideas into the future and the the longer it takes to get it out there and to get tested in the real world Mm -hmm. and get a yes or a no from the real world, I think it has a downward spiral effect on you. How can somebody stop that? How can they stop that downward spiral? You know, they keep pushing it forward and things start feeling a little bad. And when things start feeling bad, you push it forward a little more. How can you reverse that? Uh, I mean, boy, that is, uh, you should be asking a psychologist these questions, not a computer programmer. But um, but hey, yes, I should be, but I got you. I'm, I'm all you got tonight. <laughs> all right, no, that's fair. But it's a real world thing because asking a psychiatrist isn't out there in the real world having to deal with this personally. And you and I, as entrepreneurs, we've got that dreamer-itis and we've had to overcome it. So I just kind of want to get your side of that. I, I've, I've had a lot of success um, I, I would say I've had a lot of success pushing myself to the point of success or failure of, of like, you know, making sure that things either happen or don't happen in my life just by really um, going for public accountability of telling people I'm going to do this and, and, and saying it with not like I'm going to do this some point in the future, but I'm going to do this at such and such a date, you know, whatever the thing is and, and really putting myself in a point where I would be more embarrassed not to do it um, than I would to risk fail like like basically it would be feel better for me to do it um you know even if it fails because i've i've you know it's just sort of put my credibility so much on the line that i'm going to do such and such a thing whatever it is um that that's really been a useful thing for me like you know i guess you know first example i can think of that comes comes to mind is i did a bicycle trip across the southern tier of the united states i rode from uh, los angeles to florida um this was about 10 years ago but you know, I'd never done a bike ride of more than 30 miles before I did that, but I just kept telling everybody like, I'm, you know, taking two months off my job and I'm going to do this bicycle ride. And if I hadn't told everybody I knew that I was going to do that, I mean, there's no way I would have made it past the third or fourth day. Cause I was so incredibly sore by the third or fourth day. I was just, I was hating myself. I was like, <laughs> Oh my God, this was the stupidest thing I'd ever done. But at that point I'd already, you know, taken six weeks off of work and told everybody that I was going to be doing this thing. And it would have just been so horrible to, uh, you know, have to come back with my tail between my legs. I had no choice, but to keep going. So I, I think that public accountability is is a really good tool for people, assuming that you you care about the public's opinion of you. Um, to, to, <laughs> if you don't, then you know that's another story. But but that's that's been a really handy thing for me in my life as far as sort of forcing myself over a hump. 
Yeah, I've done some similar things. And I've also done, as Derek Sivers says, to not tell people your goals and your plans because some of them are just so freaking scary that if you do go telling people, you'll end up running away from them or you'll feel as if you've already accomplished them. You know, I, I've heard that same idea that like if you tell people you're going to do something, they're going to pat you on the back and say, that's great. And then you kind of like get this like early sense of accomplishment when you haven't really accomplished it yet. For some reason that that doesn't sit psychologically with my own experience. Um, you know, everybody's different, but I, I, part of me thinks that like, it depends on somebody's susceptibility. Can I, can we cuss on this show? Can I say bullshitted? Okay. So, so I mean, it's like, it depends on your own susceptibility to being bullshitted. Um, for me, if like, let, let's say you're 50 pounds overweight and you tell everybody you're going to lose 50, Hey, that's, but you, you know, you've done it yet. Like you, you kind of know that they're, they're being polite, but it's not the same as a legitimate congratulations. The legitimate congratulations is going to come after you lost the 50 pounds, not just because you, you know, wrote it on the calendar. Um, so, so I don't know, I, I guess just kind of keeping your own bullshit meter high is probably pretty important. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, yeah. So I would say for people, just test, go out there, try it out, try keeping some of your goals quiet. Also put some out there for public accountability because I've done both and they have both worked for me. Cool. I've also done both and they have both <laughs> failed for me. <laughs> Actually, they didn't fail for me. I failed my goals, right? Right. So I would say whatever actually gets you to the goal that you've set for yourself, then that's the thing you should be doing. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I, th I think also, you know, something about realistic goal setting, it really does help to think about what the last step of the process is, what the goal you want to achieve and kind of like work backwards from there. Make sure that like, every rung in the ladder that you're, you know, you're thinking about what's at the top of the ladder, but like, make sure you have a plan for every, every step in between, because, um, you know, often, oftentimes those missing gaps that you kind of gloss over in your head when you're, you're just thinking about what, what you're trying to achieve and you don't think about sort of the resources and the time between some of those stair steps. And that, that can be really, really dangerous. I've, I've made some, made some big miscalculations on different projects, uh, based on, thinking a little bit too much about the end game, a little too much about where I am right now, but not, you know, every, every chink in between. Very cool. Very cool. And I actually have like quite a few more questions, but I'm sitting here looking at my clock on, on my screen. Uh, maybe I'll have to bring you back for a part two where we can talk about going more into the development process. Yeah, man, I, I'd be thrilled to come back. That'd be great. And also to talk about some brain hacking, I think that would be something to do on another show since you've got another podcast running out there. Yeah, yeah, man. That's one of my favorite topics. Yeah, I just started a Smart Drug Smarts podcast fairly recently. Yeah, that's something that I'm interested in. So I think we'll have to do an episode of that too. So for people who are interested in getting a software app developed, iOS, Android, uh, whatever app that they're looking for, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, they should go to www.evilgeniustechnologies.com. That's technologies with an I-E-S. Although, actually, I think we bought the, uh, the singular spelling too, just in case anybody misunderstood me. But yeah, Evil Genius Technologies is my company. Very cool. And they can find you on Twitter at? Uh, yeah, my, my last name is spelled Lawler, L-A-W-L-E-R. And I am Lawler Palooza, like a playoff the Lollapalooza band thing. 
<laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Jesse, I really appreciate you coming on. And I know for the listeners, we've only just touched on what it takes to actually get an app developed. And hopefully we'll come back to this topic again in the future so that we can get you more and more information on how to actually get your app developed and out into the marketplace. So until the next time, enjoy your foolish adventure. You've just listened to The Foolish Adventure Show with Tim Conley. To get more straight talk about making money online and building a successful internet business, go to foolishadventure.com. There, you can opt into the Freedom File newsletter. You'll also get access to the Foolish Guide to Launching Products video training module, over an hour and 20 minutes of business building knowledge that can generate tens of thousands of dollars for your new product. Enjoy your foolish adventure.